0: Welcome back to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, KEYK, 89.3 Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, we're back here with David Barton. As I said in your, uh, in your bio, you're, you're known as America's historian. Have you always been interested in history?
1: Actually, I grew up hating history. I was a math and science guy. Science was my gig. Went to college math and science scholarship, taught math and science in high school. Uh, was definitely in the math and science. Did not like history. And, and part of the reason I did not like history was the way that I learned it. And, and I remember I, I'm a faith guy. And so faith is an important thing to me. Uh, I, I'm in line with John Adams that John Adams said, our Constitution was made only for a religious and moral people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of the other. And I, I'm a strong advocate for religion and morality that if you can control yourself, you need less government. The less you can control yourself, the more government you need. And religion and morality is one of the greatest self-restraints that's out there. If I do things like the Golden Rule and and I want to treat others the way I want to be treated, or if I do the Good Samaritan and and help those that are in need, then we need less government. And and so I'm a huge fan uh, of self-control, religious and moral control, so that we need less government control. And that was the founder's viewpoint on it. But when you take that and move it forward, because I think religion and morality is important, I remember my sixth grade history, and I've got white hair, so I go back a few generations. My sixth grade history teacher told me that George Washington had 26 illegitimate children, giving new meaning to the phrase "Washington slept here." <laughs> now, as a guy, as a kid in elementary school who thought religion and morality is important, I, I don't like Washington. That's who he is. If, if he got 26 illegitimate kids and he doesn't think religion and morality is important, he's not my hero. Well, I, as it turned out, that's exactly the opposite of who he was. And I didn't know that. And I was also told, look, we, we can't have prayer at school or anything else because the founding fathers didn't want that. We can't have the Bible at schools. And so I, I grew up not liking the founding fathers, not liking history, because everything I was told about them was negative and bad and attacked my value system. But then... What changed me was as an adult, when I was a school principal, I found some original documents and those original documents uh, completely reversed what I had believed. For example, uh, I was doing some work with with legal issues and in researching some legal issues. I've been involved in 11 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court and and in researching some legal issues, I found a unanimous Supreme Court decision Where the supreme court said if you're going to be a government-run and a government-operated school you will teach the bible in schools we're not going to have a government-run government-operated school that won't teach the bible and i'm going what i've never heard that i heard it was just the opposite and then as i read the case they were quoting all these founding fathers who talked about how the bible has to be the base of what we do as signers of the constitution signers of the declaration And I'm going, wait a minute, I thought these guys were all atheists and agnostics and deists, but I'm seeing an original Supreme Court case here, a unanimous ruling that says, we'll never take the Bible out of schools. This is not the history I learned. And then I came across Washington's original 1796 farewell address, and I read it. And in that farewell address, he spent a long time on the importance of religion and morality. And and he said, all of our politics, he said "Our, our political prosperity, uh, he said, of all the, the habits and dispositions that would lead to political prosperity, he said, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great values. So Washington says, if you want your politics to work right, the two things you don't separate is religion and morality. And said, by the way, if you try to separate religion and morality from politics, I will let you call yourself a patriot. He said, in vain can you claim the tribute of patriotism. Now, here's a guy who knew a patriot when he saw one, Valley Fords and the soldiers and the revolution, everything else. And he says, My litmus test is simple. If you try to undermine religion and morality, you're not a patriot. I'm going, Wait a minute, time out. That's exactly opposite to what my teachers told me, what my school told me, but I'm seeing original documents. And so, starting with that, we started collecting original documents, and we now have about 120,000 original documents from before 1812. So thousands of items from the Washingtons and Adams and Jeffersons and Madisons and those guys, and then thousands of items from after 1812. But what we have found in original documents has completely shifted my view of founding fathers, of constitution, of, of so many other things. And so now I am a big fan of history and of knowing it because it used to be I didn't know it. And when I didn't know it, I believed a lot of lies. But once I found out what the original document said and what the truth was, now I've got a whole different viewpoint.
0: Well, and that that is that is amazing, and 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 it is really sad that we're we're told so many things that just that just aren't so, and you know a lot of the, um, you know the 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 fabled uh, separation of church and state. Um, you know, people think that that's. Know, part of the Constitution, and I've yet to find it in the Constitution. I've yet to have anybody point point to it in the Constitution. you know, It was a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists, and it like you point out, the you know faith, not a specific religion, but faith and the, and the belief in a, a creator was a found was a foundation of our founding principles, and it was a the, you know what our, what our founding principles were really built upon, and you know the the. The, the framers weren't trying to protect the state from religion. They were more to me, correct me if I'm wrong, trying to protect religion from the state uh, because you had the Anglican Church over in the Church of England um, you know that was one of the, that was one of the uh, one of the um, uh, complaints listed in the Declaration of Independence for our separation from England
1: and it was very clearly a nationally state established church. Uh, Actually, at the time that the founding fathers put prohibition on that in the First Amendment, which people say is separation church and state, but as you point out, is not there. Uh, Nine of the 13 individual states had state-established religions for the state. But the First Amendment said, we're not going to have a national established religion. We're not going to, as in Great Britain, we're all going to be Anglicans. Or as in France, we're all going to be Catholics. Or as in Germany, we're all going to be Lutherans or whatever the, the state decided you were going to be able to choose it, which is why the First Amendment simply says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, the, the uh, Presbyterian or the Methodist or the Baptist or anything, you, you can't set up a national religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So government can't do anything to stop religious expressions, but it can't do anything to make a national law that respects one religious establishment over another. So for them, it was really simple. No nationally established denomination. The commentaries that came out on the Constitution shortly thereafter, whether it's Rawls' commentaries or whether it's St. Tucker's commentaries, you lead on in the story's commentaries, all the commentaries of the day explain very simply the First Amendment only prohibits a national religion. It doesn't limit religion at all and encourages it by saying you have to protect the free exercise thereof. So that changed in 1947. In 1947, the the court Everson versus Board of Education said, no, no, no. What that means is you can't have a religious activity in public and that's separation church and state. No religious activities in public. So there went graduation uh, acknowledgments and there went the prayers at school and there went uh, nativity scenes in, in, in city squares and all that went out the door. And it's interesting that in, since 1947, there have been 4,000 cases on the First Amendment. And the courts in those 4,000 cases have quoted Jefferson's letter on separation 4,000 times, but they've quoted the First Amendment only 3,000 times in First Amendment cases. So in other words, they quote the Constitution less than they quote Jefferson. But the more important part about Jefferson's letter, when he, he wrote explaining what the Constitution meant, it's a 233 word It's three paragraphs long, it's very short, simple. And he explained that separation churches, the wall of separation between church and state meant that the government could not stop a public religious activity, which is why Jefferson is part of starting church at the US Capitol on every Sunday. Jefferson made sure that there were missionaries to Indian tribes. Jefferson spent extensive amount of federal funds in promoting religion, but he wrote the separation church and state letter And what's interesting is earlier courts used to quote all of Jefferson's letter to keep religious expressions in public. They said, look, the First Amendment is really clear. You can't take out a religious expression. Jefferson's letter explains the First Amendment. He points out you can't remove a religious expression, so we're not going to. In 1947, they took only eight words from Jefferson's letter, a wall of separation between church and state, And although that has been quoted in 4,000 cases since 1947, not a single court has quoted Jefferson's full letter, only three paragraphs. They only quote eight words out of it, and they've twisted it and put it in the opposite direction of what Jefferson himself said. If anybody quoted Jefferson's full letter or quoted the full First Amendment, you wouldn't be having uh, an attempt to stop religious expressions, you'd be protecting them. So that's a great example of where not knowing our history has, al- has allowed the Constitution to be reinterpreted in a way it was never designed, and it is now causing problems that were, were, were prevented in previous generations. So that's one of the things where knowing history makes all the difference. We'll be right back after this message.
2: This important message is brought to you by your friends at conventionofstates.com. Paying attention to politics is most likely causing a helpless feeling, a desperate and paralyzing emotion. Your government has disappointed you, and there isn't any light at the end of the tunnel. But wait, there is an answer, and it's simple. Join me as a volunteer at conventionofstates.com. The Founding Fathers of our country saw that our government would spin out of control one day, so they gave us Article 5 of the Constitution. It simply states that we, the people, can limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, impose fiscal restraints, and place term limits on federal officials. So fight back. Bring the power back home where it belongs. The first step is simple. Go to conventionofstates.com and find the secret to forcing our politicians to listen to us locals. Join us at conventionofstates.com. Sign the petition and volunteer. conventionofstates.com.
3: This public affairs moment is presented by the conventionofstates.com. Once upon a time, a magic seed was sown, a seed that would sprout to become the backbone of a great nation that elevated it to greater heights. That nation is Uncle Sam, and the seed is the constitution binding the nation. The masterminds who sowed the seed are our founders, but something happened along the way. The nation plunged into debt due to selfish politicians who were more interested in their personal success than the welfare of the people. Many preferred to die in Congress than pave the way for fresh minds. Things are gradually turning from the government of the people to a government of some people. But the founders were wise. They anticipated this situation and placed a remedy to be activated when things go out of hand. What's the remedy? It's called Article 5. The article states that 34 states could rally and call for a Convention of States to repair the system. For more info, visit conventionofstates.com.
2: You're listening to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, eighty-nine point three Lake of the Ozarks. And now, here's your host, Brett Sturley.
0: Well, uh, I think you've, you've touched on this a little bit, you know. But you know, history has a, gets a bad rap about you know being boring, and you know, I've, I was I was known to maybe catch up on a little bit of sleep and some uh, high school history classes uh, from time to time. And and uh, but you know, you and wall builders, as you indicated, are involved in educating. Uh, everyone from elementary students through teenagers to our more experienced citizens, what, what are some of the ways that you make history engaging?
1: One of the things that we have learned about history is that history is about people and about stories. And so the way we used to teach American history was we taught the stories of the people involved because even though they may live in a different generation, their motivations, their responses, the things that happened to them. Every generation can relate to that. Their technology may have been different, but the situation they face, we can imagine ourselves there. So it used to be that if you wanted to study the American Revolution, you read a biography about George Washington, you read a biography about ladies like Abigail Adams, and you read a biography about black heroes like Wentworth Cheswell, or or you read biographies about foreign heroes like Casimir Pulaski or whoever, and you learn the story of these guys, and you go, "Wow, that's really cool!" Because you see everything that happened, the interactions they had, the difficulties they faced. Today, we've changed and gotten away from stories to dates and names and places. And so, we're going to teach you all the stuff about what date it happened, what month it happened, and and it's no longer people. It's it's facts, and and facts are really hard for people to just get warm with, and, and so as a result we really don't like history that much today because it doesn't have much human relevance and that's a problem so what we do is we go back to teaching the stories of history and when you do you get a whole different view of history great example as i'll just point to what's happening now with statues what's happening with black lives matter um, i was teaching in a college yesterday a number of black students there talked to a lot of those kids after it was done And what i did was i went through the history of a number of black patriots who were significant heroes in the american revolution now the way we cover black history today there's not much black history before martin luther king jr maybe we'll throw under frederick Douglass along the way but not else but if i can take you back and show you that the american revolution started because of the actions of a single black guy and that it ended largely because the actions of a single black guy who was america's first double spy and in the meantime, I'll take you back to the story of Jack Sisson and show you about the first SEAL Team operation and what this Black Patriot did. Or I'll, I'll take you to Prince Esterbrook and show you what he did as a Minuteman. Or I'll take you to Lemuel Haynes, another Black Minuteman. Or I'll take you to the Battle of Bunker Hill and show you that even in the paintings back in the day, the hero pointed out in the Battle of Bunker Hill was Peter Salem. And the textbooks for Generation Thereafter taught you about Peter Salem. And I can take you to all these Black heroes Harry Hoosier, John Morant, people we don't know about today. And what happens today is black folks generally don't see themselves anywhere close in the American founding. And therefore, they find the founding of no relevance to them. Well, they don't have a clue at the time the Constitution was ratified that, for example, in America, in the northern states, blacks voted and blacks voted for ratification of the Constitution. Uh, I think it was in Baltimore. The 85% of blacks in Baltimore voted for ratification of the Constitution. So if, if blacks knew that today, they wouldn't feel like they're outside strangers, and they were always slaves, and that's the only thing a black has ever been in America. And finally, we're going to get to the point where blacks can have some standing. No, no, no. Man, go back and, and look, 1768, when Wentworth Cheswell was elected to office in New Hampshire. Go back to 1641, and he was a black, black patriot. Go back to 1641 with blacks elected in Maryland. Uh, go to 1793 with blacks elected to office in, in Pennsylvania. And just go through all the black educators of the 1830s, John Chavez. And you know, I'm throwing out names that probably most people are scratching their head over and saying, I've never heard those names. Exactly. And that's the problem is we don't tell the stories anymore. And so people do not see themselves in history. And as a result, they're very frustrated. Now, granted, there were some bad things that happened in American history regarding race, but there were a lot of really good things that happened on the equality side. We have the 1619 Project going from the New York Times talking about Jamestown. Yeah, Jamestown, slavery, they go together. But you know what? Let's talk about the Pilgrims because the second load of ships that came to America came to the Pilgrims, and the Pilgrims freed the slaves and imprisoned the slave owners. And there never was a time in Massachusetts history when blacks could not vote or hold office or whatever. But we want to talk about the southern view with Virginia and Jamestown rather than the northern view. And 85% of the population was in the north. And, and that's where you had all these equal rights. But nobody knows that today. So literally not not seeing ourselves in the stories causes us not to find ourselves in history, which causes us not to like or appreciate or defend our history. And that's a problem.
0: Well, and, and those are great stories and stories that, that that we all need to know. I mean, they're, they're just great stories of American history. And, you know, um, one of the things that that, that I hear is, um, you know, one, one of the things with the Constitution is a three-fifth compromise. And, yeah. you know, that can get, kind of gets thrown back. Well, here, look, you're you're treating... A black individual as 60 percent of a person no that's not it at all that that was that was that was penalizing the southern states and telling them hey you know we said all men are created equal and we're now by our creator with certain unalienable rights or among these are life liberty and pursuit of happiness you're encroaching on those unalienable rights which you cannot do so southern states if you're going to insist on you know the unnatural the by violating natural law by keeping other individuals other human beings in servitude then you're not going to get equal representation in in the house of representatives now if you go ahead and and you and you free You free the slaves, and you don't keep indentured servants. Then you can be represented just like we are here in the North. You have one, you know, where to you have you have um, you know uh, you know a a person is counted for purposes of representation in the in the legislature as a full person. But if if you're going to violate those natural rights, then you're not. Then we're going to we're going to penalize you with your representation in the, in the in the House of Representatives.
1: Yeah, and that's an important clause because again, in today's meme kind of soundbite society, uh, we just throw a little phrase out there and everybody believes it because they don't know enough history to know otherwise. And Bray you just went through a lot of the good history, and, and it goes back to very simply: the Constitution said, for every thirty thousand inhabitants in a state, you get a representative to Congress, unless you're a slave state and then it's going to take 50,000 inhabitants. So that three-fifths clause saying you can only count three-fifths of the slave population, it's not about three-fifths of an individual. It's about we're reducing pro-slavery representation to Congress by 40%. We're making sure that the pro-slavery side has less votes so we can end this thing even quicker. It was an anti-slavery clause, and one of the greatest guys to talk about that was Frederick Douglass a great civil rights leader, black civil rights leader, he was taught by abolitionists that that three-fifths clause meant blacks were only three-fifths a person. And so they told him that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. And he believed that, he said, until he got paid to speak in anti-slavery. And he said at that time, being paid to speak, he felt responsible for having to read the Constitution and knowing what he was talking about. He said when he read the Constitution, he went through an epiphany. He found that far from being a pro-slavery document, it was anti-slavery in every clause, including the three-fifths clause. He saw exactly what the Constitution said. That was an attempt to reduce the representation in pro-slavery states. It was nothing about the worth of individuals. It was everything about having more anti-slavery reps in Congress than pro-slavery reps. I mean, there's a guy who actually read the, the document. Today, most folks have not read the document um, and and it's, it's pathetic that only 20, 24% of Americans can name the three branches of government. And by the way, only 48% of elected officials can name the three branches of government. Well, if you don't know what the branches of government, you sure don't know anything about the three-fifths clause because three branches of government is is the, the obvious, evident part. I mean, that's what we see every day. We don't see the three-fifths clause every day. And, and so we don't even know what that means today. But we don't even know what the constitution means and that's a real problem well, not knowing. Yeah, I mean I it's
0: it's easy to get into the into the weeds, but you know, uh with, with that, I mean our level of understanding of so many people in society, I mean, they can't even get to where they can even see the weeds. Yeah. You, that's you know, <laughs> that's them, right.
1: Well said. So. well said. Well said.
0: Well, I certainly hope that you enjoyed that from David Barton, and that's uh, part one of our interview. Uh, Part two will be next week, and we will delve in a little bit more into uh, history and the Constitution and uh, some of the solutions that are presented to us in the Constitution of the State of our Republic. Look forward to seeing you here again here this next week, and um, thank you for joining us here on Freedom's Call on Key Radio, KEYK 89.3, Lake of the Ozarks.
2: You've been listening to Freedom's Call with your host, Brett Sturley. If you'd like to interact with the show, send us an email to freedomscall89.3 at gmail.com. That's freedomscall three at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Convention of States movement and how you can join our fight to restore the Constitution and preserve democracy, visit conventionofstates.com. Join us again next week at this same time for Freedom's Call.